Please stand for the reading of the word. We'll be reading from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that me, may, you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So it was about three years after Jesus had returned to heaven. The disciples were all still living in Jerusalem, worshiping at the temple according to Jewish tradition, just like they always had done. A few months later, Stephen was stoned to death because he preached that Jesus was the God of the Old Testament and the promised Messiah. So the angels in heaven were talking to Jesus one day, so the story goes. And in my mind, it kind of went something like this. Jesus... You know, it's been almost three years since you've returned. But uh, we've been looking down there and we've noticed that not too many things have changed. I mean, according to your command to go into all the world and preach the gospel. 
The only one stirring anything up down there is that guy Saul. Wow, he's driven. You know, we need someone like him on our side. So, Jesus, do you have a plan? Well, this morning, let's talk about God's plan. And let's begin by talking about this man, Saul. Next to Jesus, Saul was the most important human being who ever lived. He led the church into a worldwide movement, formed its theology, and shaped its destiny. Without a person like Saul, the early church would not have grown into the spiritual and intellectual maturity that changed the course of history. And the only explanation for his leaderships and gifts was that he was a man in Christ. The first half of the book of Acts is based on the birth of the church. And the second half deals with its expansion into the extent of the then known world. The most important event in history for which Jesus Christ lived, died, was resurrected and glorified was his infilling of a new humanity, the body of Christ, the church. The second most strategic event was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And the secret of his life was that Christ lived in him. And God wants the same for each of us today. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, shows us the man, his hopes and visions, his victories and triumphs, and his frustrations and failures. Saul's life was an act of the Holy Spirit, the living and indwelling Christ. This Pharisee's conversion, transformation, and remolding could only have been accomplished through the miracle of the Holy Spirit. And Saul claimed nothing less or more. His life purpose and passion is found in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ. Let's think about the mind of Saul. It took six days and nights to journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. It was over 135 miles. Saul was determined to purge Israel of the followers of Jesus. But there began to be questions forming in his mind. His teacher Gamaliel, whom Saul revered, had allowed the disciples to continue preaching and even warned the Sanhedrin that this new movement may even be of God. Saul couldn't help admiring these people, now called the way, Despite the persecution, their numbers grew. How could believing in a dead Galilean carpenter produce such excitement? Now Saul had known Jesus during his three years of ministry, and as far as he was concerned, Jesus had been a political anarchist and a religious blasphemer. When Stephen was stoned to death, Saul even held their coats when he was appointed to head the effort to rid Jerusalem of Jesus' followers, 
Saul took the assignment with fanatical delight. But he kept seeing Stephen's face. That face. Why couldn't he get that face, his vision and his prayer to Jesus, out of his mind? Saul was both a Hebrew Pharisee and a man of the world. Born and raised by Hebrew parents in Tarsus, he had both Hebrew tradition and Greek culture. Because of his intellect, he was able to study under Gamaliel, the greatest Hebrew intellect of the day, at a very early age. Saul spoke fluent Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. He was exactly the kind of man Jesus needed for his plan. His name, Saul, is Hebrew. And in Greek, it means Paul. And that's why we have the name change. But as God would have it, while Saul was tracking down Christ's followers, the Lord was tracking him. Waiting for the right moment, the Lord was setting the stage. The very one whose persecution had caused some of the Lord's people to flee to Damascus and start strong churches there, would be central in the Lord's strategy for the future. It was high noon when Saul and his men reached the outskirts of the city. The Pharisee was in deep thought when it happened. But all of his thoughts would soon be centered into one great question that he would be asking for the rest of his life. A bolt of lightning flashed. He and the soldiers were thrown to the ground. Shaken and quivering, he waited for the thunder, but it came in the form of a powerful voice from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There was authority, judgment, grace, and urgency in that voice. And then the answer came. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in some translations it asks, why are you kicking against the goads? Well, the goads were disturbing thoughts which Saul had. Saul already had questions in his mind, didn't he? And questions come through the Holy Spirit. And preparation for any conversion begins with the Lord. 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, Paul stated later in his life, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. This man was perfectly suited to bridge the movement of God's grace, both from the Hebrew into the Greek worlds. That's why it's Saul in the first half of Acts and Paul in the second. Saul had unsettling thoughts and questions all rolled into one question that now hit him with the realization that this was none other than Jesus whom he had been persecuting. The followers of the way were right after all, weren't they? Jesus was alive. Now Saul wasn't intimidated, but trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
And he would never stop asking that question all of his life. It became the secret of his life guided by the Holy Spirit later on. And like Saul, it should be our obedient question in every situation, every day of our life. Now, the Lord could have converted Saul at that moment, but he had it planned in a way that would release Saul from an old life and at the same time release the church from their fear of Saul. When Saul arose from the ground, he was blind. What a pitiful picture. The arrogant, driven Saul of Tarsus being led into the city which he had planned to purge of the followers of the very one who had appeared and spoken to him. Near the the end of his life, he spoke of that encounter as a heavenly vision. So the blindness must have followed the hearing of the voice and the seeing of the vision. The Lord had a plan, didn't he? Yes, he did. The scales over Saul's eyes would permit him to focus on Nothing or no one for three days, except the Lord who had appeared to him. Verse 9 reveals the dramatic scene of a capturer being himself captured for a great purpose, which he would soon discover. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now in verse 10, the scene shifts. It says, now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The only thing that came near matching the panic Saul felt on the road was the fear Ananias felt when the Lord appeared to him and told him to go to the persecutor of the followers of the way. Verse 11, and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. This was a severe test for Ananias' faith, since he would have had no way of knowing of Saul's conversion, since the Lord didn't reveal it to him. But the footnote, for behold, he is praying, tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us what Saul was doing in his three days without sight. Prayer is the response of the believing heart to God. Prayer is as natural for the Christian as breathing, and Saul became a man of unceasing prayer. Verse 13, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And just like what our response would be Ananias reminds God about how evil the man Saul was. And how many times have we had conversation with God to kind of straighten him out? It's happened. But Ananias was to be a reconciler and bring an awesome message to his feared enemy. Verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go, For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. How gracious of the Lord to share his strategy for Saul in order to quell the fears of Ananias. 
God didn't tell Ananias everything he planned. That would have been too much, too soon for, for the blinded Saul. And the Lord seldom gives us our life plan all at once. He gives us just enough to help us set our immediate goals and then walk in obedience each day. I think one of the most moving scenes in all of Scripture is what happened when Ananias went to Saul. He found the feared persecutor, alone, blind, and helpless. All the hurt and fright Ananias had felt for what this man had done to his brothers and sisters in Christ had drained away. The same Lord who told him to go to Saul had given him his own character traits of love and forgiveness. It was because of the Lord's compassion and acceptance that Ananias could say with real warmth, Brother Saul. Brother? Yes, Ananias had taken the Lord's command seriously. Verse 17 shows the encounter completed. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and took food and was strengthened. So after questioning God, God, what are you thinking? This man is dangerous. Ananias entered the house and called him Brother Saul. What a change in the mind of Ananias. From his fear to Saul to the point of calling him brother. And what an introduction into the Christian fellowship. No ridicule. No words of reproach. Nothing but the soothing sound of a brother who had also experienced God's grace. And finally, verse 19. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples who were at Damascus. Now I think Luke really underestimates what's going on here. God was doing as much in the Damascus disciples as he was doing in Saul and Ananias. And here we see the church alive. A liberated Pharisee, freed from hatred, and disciples liberated from prejudice and fear. And one sure mark of a transformed life is the desire to be with fellow Christians. 1 John 3 verse 14 reads, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. John MacArthur quoted us, This doesn't mean that Christians are not to have contact with unbelievers, but a professing Christian who only prefers the company of the people of the world is probably still one of them. So what does this mean for us in the 21st century? Well, the Christian life really begins with a divine encounter with Jesus, doesn't it? We are either being prepared for it, or we are living in the assurance of it. Or we are, in other, in other words, we are looking towards the cross for our salvation, 
or we're looking over our shoulder as the result of our salvation. And the Lord prepares us for that encounter. Think back to that memory when you realized that God was real and he was dealing with you for the first time. He prepares us. He prepares us with questions that don't go away. The goads. Questions that keep nagging us that can only be answered by him. He's gracious to love us to the end of our own resources so that we can listen to what he has to say to us. I'm sure we're all guilty of making excuses rather than listening to other people's advice. But God always gives us more than he asks in return. All we need to do is listen. We listen when we read the Bible, don't we? We listen to that inner voice when we pray. That's the Holy Spirit whispering to us. He has a plan for every life which we discover after we have met him. A guided life is a life in fellowship with him. And then he will use another person to confirm our encounter so that we can know both the joy of fellowship with him and other believers. And this is where the church comes in. Conversion never happens in a vacuum of independence. No, it leads to a declaration of interdependence. What do you see when you notice husbands and wives whose lives are in misery because of their lifestyles? Do you see people who are getting what they deserve? Or people who are in desperate need of the presence of Jesus Christ? What do you see when you notice lives overturned by the frustration of past upbringing and the present crisis that's too much for them to bear? You see people who are too far gone to see them as, or, or do you see them as children who are in desperate need of healing? What do we see when we look at the world around us? The Lord didn't place Ananias in the world to see only with physical vision, but to see the world as God sees it. The healing process for Ananias was complete when he began seeing with godly eyes. And then he was ready to go. What a picture for the church. Both the local church and the universal church. The church is that vehicle where the brotherhood of God comes to life. Where people's pasts and presents are measured by the calculator of God's grace. Everyone else in the world seems determined to judge us by our past. We should be able to feel safe in the church. The church should express the very character of God's grace. A place where I'm not afraid and I'm not ashamed to call a fellow sinner brother or sister. Like the woman who crawled her way through the streets to touch the hem of Jesus' robe. Our world is filled today with people who are in need of the touch of brotherhood and sisterhood that comes from the presence of God, his church. Again, true conversion leads to the declaration of interdependence with other believers, and our lives reflect Christ. Our lives reflect the church universal. 
We are the church. And your life may be the only church that the world ever sees. But I'd like to add that being involved in the church community by giving tithes and offerings, which we pledge each year, as Bonnie explained to us earlier, by volunteering and attending church gatherings adds a dimension to our lives that the world will never know or appreciate. And this goes especially for children growing up in the church. So as we reflect on the conversion of Saul, can you see how God prepared each person involved? He does that the same way in our lives. Ask yourself this. How has and how is God preparing me today? Are you allowing him to work out his plan in your life? The lives of Saul and Ananias illustrate the truth that the transformed life demands service to Christ. And as Paul later wrote, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1. Shall we pray? Dear Father, may each of our lives represent your universal church to the world. Thank you for the plan that you have for each one of our lives and for the lives of our families. In Jesus' name, amen.